Thank you. Thank you, Bruce, for the kind invitation. Thank you, David, for that beautiful uh, description of this patient. So what I'd like to do now is step back a little bit and, and talk more generally about antigen presentation defects um, and resistant to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, and then really describe a few ways that we're trying to move forward and, and hopefully develop strategies to uh, attack um, this, these tumors that have these mechanisms of resistance. And here are some of my disclosures. So you saw this already. I think what's important uh, that David noted is that down here, um, beta-2 microglobulin is, is required for loading antigen uh, onto HLA type 1. Uh, and so without beta-2 microglobulin, uh, you don't have HLA expression. Um, as also was described, there are a number of, of uh, emerging descriptions of mechanisms of resistance to immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, but a clear central theme seems to be antigen loss. And so our series, uh, and this is work that was led by Nirha Cohen uh, and Moshe uh, Sade-Feldman, uh, where we took patients that we had longitudinal biopsies uh, from our melanoma tumor bank, uh, and in, in, at, for the initial um, analysis, we had 17 patients, um, and we decided to, to kind of look across. And when we looked across mutations and neoantigens and, and a number of other ways of analyzing um, lots of data, we didn't really identify any one specific um, trend that seemed to, to give us the answer is why patients were developing um, resistance. So we decided, well, let's look at individual patients. So this was before this individual patient that you just heard about. Uh, and so we, we decided to, to look at one of my patients. Um, and this is a woman who had responded for six months uh, and then relapsed and had six high-quality biopsies at baseline disease regression, disease progression. Um, and uh, most of her disease, there's a theme here when we were able to get multiple biopsies, it usually means that they are accessible. Uh, and so uh, this woman had uh, a nice response uh, with ipilimumab. Um, and then uh, at, at time of, of progression, uh, she received pembrolizumab. Uh, and so we did a number of biopsies at these time points. And so we looked at longitudinal monitoring of cancer cell frequency. Um, it's a complex issue. We filtered for mutations with high... Uh, cancer cell fraction uh, only in progressing samples, and we identified one gene that met the following criteria that were non -silent, multiple non-silent mutations, loss of heterozygosity that were dominant only in the progressing disease, and one out of uh, nearly 6,000 mutations satisfied these criteria, uh, and that was um, beta-2 microglobulin. Uh, and so then we decided to look very specifically at this patient in, in beta-2 microglobulin, and uh, here are the um, pre- and early post-treatment samples. So this is when the patient was on ipilimumab and regressing. Uh, and here's um, a look at uh, 15Q. Uh, patient did have loss of heterozygosity um, at baseline, uh, but then on the progressing samples had developed a number, in, in fact, two distinct mutations uh, in beta-2 microglobulin. Uh, that led to the complete uh, loss of antigen expression. And then we looked across the, uh, the whole cohort, and what we identified is that uh, two patients who had resistance, so had initial benefit and then developed resistance, uh, had developed mutations in beta-2 microglobulin, which were uh, in a very similar place 
uh, in the gene uh, and led to uh, reduced or, or absence expression of antigen. Uh, and then three patients, one patient who developed resistance and two non-responders who had loss of heterozygosity uh, at baseline. Uh, and this just shows uh, the patients that we're talking about. And then we went back and said, okay, that's an interesting finding in our, in our cohort. Let's look at larger cohorts uh, where data exists. And so this is um, the Van Allen database that, that David just mentioned. These are patients who are treated with anti-CTLA-4 antibody. And what we identified was uh, that uh, 24 uh, of these patients uh, had loss of heterozygosity of beta-2 microglobulin. Uh, on this, these were just baseline samples. Uh, and that there was um, a dramatic uh, increase uh, of, of this in non-responders versus responders with an odds ratio of, of three and uh, a, uh, a p-value that was significant. Um, complete loss of, of beta-2M was actually uh, seen uh, in six out of 69 non-responders and none of the responders. Um, we then decided to look at a data set uh, that was of anti-PD-1 antibody-treated patients. This is a set of about 50 or 60 patients uh, from UCLA. Uh, five of the 17 non-responders, two of the 21 responders um, had uh, loss of heterozygosity. Similar odds ratio, we didn't have the same uh, number, so this didn't reach statistical significance, but again, similar uh, percentage of patients. Uh, so both across these two, we had uh, about 30% of patients had loss of heterozygosity or a mutation. We didn't have any mutations in this data set, but mutations were seen in the Van Allen data set. Um, and then looking across our data set, uh, looking across the Van Allen data set uh, and this Hugo data set, uh, really consistent, just under 30% um, loss of heterozygosity in beta-2 microglobulin, suggesting that this is a common issue uh, and one that we are, are dealing with on a daily basis when treating our patients. Uh, with anti-PD-1 antibody therapy. When looking at survival, uh, and this is um, progression, this is overall survival, uh, actually, sorry, progression-free survival uh, of uh, ipilimumab, an anti-PD-1 antibody, if you don't have loss of heterozygosity, and if you do, uh, clearly significantly better for patients um, who did not have loss of heterozygosity. Uh, and to summarize kind of where we were at this point, uh, beta-2 aberrations happen. Uh, they include loss of function mutations and deletions or socially acquired resistance, but then also beta-2M uh, loss of heterozygosity in pretreatment samples is associated with poor response rates, progression-free survival, uh, and overall survival with uh, various immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, in addition, in our analysis of the longitudinal samples, uh, which David just presented, the clone that comes out is from the lineage that has loss of beta-2 microglobulin. Uh, suggesting that that's probably the most important reason why those cells survived and were able to survive long enough to gain another uh, advantage against the immune system and pop up years down the road. We built upon uh, this work uh, with additional work led by Moshe and Nier, where we had single cell sequencing on 32 patients. Uh, we had pre and on treatment um, samples that were obtained. Um, and this tells you a little bit about, we had 48 samples in all, um, and these were non-responders, responders, non-responders, non responders. This is baseline, and this is um, early on treatment. Um, and what, what was identified were um, uh, really two major categories 
of, of T cells, although when you dissect them up, you could develop about 12 categories of immune cells. And, and this just says they're different. Um, and, and what the, the, the computational folks did is they decided, well, let's look at the, the samples that are associated with response. And there's these blue ones where clearly they were labeled T cell G, which was good, versus orange, which was T cell B, which was bad. And the good ones, not surprisingly, they, those were associated with a good outcome. Um, and, and most all of the bad ones, so this is a ratio of good to bad. And so in the ratio favored bad, um, patients did worse. But there were some of these patients that actually did poorly, um, but, but had you know, a, a good ratio. The ratio was, was elevated. And, and these are circled in, in white here. And what that white means is that we had exome sequencing data to identify that those patients had aberrations in antigen presentation. So even our, our uh, way of predicting uh, from single cell sequencing the T cell clones that were most likely associated with a good outcome, um, when, when that failed, it almost always failed because the antigen presentation machinery was off. And, and the idea kind of makes sense. If you have the antigen presentation machinery um, initially there, the T cells go in and they're primed to attack that tumor. That can also happen and that tumor can be cloned out and pruned out. So those, those T cells that would be most responsive are pruned out by the immune system. By the time you come in with your immunotherapy, you've gotten rid of a number of the cells that are going to respond. You have non-responsive cells that are left behind that are not expressing antigen and your, your uh, anti-PD-1 antibody therapy is, is ineffective, and, and that's the theory behind these. Um, and then this is just showing the same thing again. And so the summary there is single-cell sequencing of T-cell population predicts response, uh, but it, the model fails uh, in patients with antigen presentation machinery defects. And then again, the implication there is, is evolutionary pressure uh, and, and tumor pruning. So how do we build upon this? Um, these, this is a, a summary of phase one, two, and three trials uh, combining either anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 antibody therapies. Good luck finding the right one with all of these. And this was a year and a half ago, so there's probably a lot more. Clearly, it's dizzying, and, and there's no way you can just kind of look at that and identify which of, of those strategies is the right way. I think it makes sense to actually think about the biology. And so this is um, lifted uh, from um, Dan Chen and Ira Melman's uh, seminal immun immunity paper, looking at the immune, uh, tumor immune cycle, um, release of antigens, antigen presentation, all the way back to killing of cancer cells. Uh, in blue are, are, are therapies that are FDA-approved, oncolytic viruses, anti-CTLA-4, oncolytic viruses, anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4. Um, in red are things that are, that are happening now, uh, and, and quite honestly, in black are things that are happening now, too. Um, these are many of the second drug uh, from that previous slide that showed all those trials that are happening. And so what I wanted to do was just describe some of the efforts uh, that we're looking at with regards to antigen presentation and release of cancer antigens and trying to, to develop strategies that actually lead to increased antigen expression and ultimately, ideally, ways to attack um, antigen loss. Now, one thing I will say that I'm not going to touch upon, but since we had a nice talk about, um, about T cells, um, 
HLA loss, our body has a way of dealing with that. It's called natural killer cells. So natural killer cells are actually designed to destroy any cell in the body that doesn't express HLA. And so one obvious therapy for immunologists when they see, see the, the idea of antigen loss is to think about uh, therapies that direct NK cells to the tumor to destroy those, those tumor cells that are not expressing antigen. Um, I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but that's one sort of big theme um, that, that I think we could move towards. But as Yeku said uh, about a half hour ago, we're not very far along with NK cell therapies, uh, and that's very true, but hopefully won't be true for very long. So let's talk about HDAC inhibition. Uh, so this is um, work that is done by uh, a number of collaborators. Um, the um, trial is run by Syndax in collaboration with Merck, uh, and it's a, um, a, a phase one study of intinistat, which is an HDAC inhibitor, pan-HDAC inhibitor, uh, and pembrolizumab. Uh, and so this was presented at ASCO uh, this past uh, June. So HDAC inhibition may be a good idea. It does two probable things, although the second one is probably more important than the first. So the, the first thing that is purported with HDAC inhibition, and there's preclinical models to justify this, uh, is that it may modify the tumor microenvironment by inhibiting myeloid-derived suppressor cells. And that's all well and good, but I'm not giving a talk about myeloid-derived suppressor cells. I'm giving a talk about antigen presentation. The other thing that HDAC inhibitors probably do is increase antigen expression. And they may do that in a way by unleashing epigenetic silencing of antigen expression. So as I, as I mentioned, loss of heterozygosity is an important thing. When you lose heterozygosity, it means you have one um, allele that has to be shut down uh, at some, some way along, somewhere along the line. Tumors are very good at shutting down genes uh, by uh, epigenetic silencing. Uh, and targeting the epigenetics of the tumor may actually unsilence uh, certain genes that are being repressed. In this case, if you unsilence beta-2 microglobulin or HLA in general, you may end up getting increased antigen expression. In any event, this is the data from patients. All of these patients had metastatic melanoma. All of these patients had previously been treated with an anti-PD-1 antibody, uh, and that didn't work. Uh, and so, what we see is, is uh, down is good, up is bad, and the majority of patients had some regression of their tumor. Uh, a handful of patients uh, had partial responses, uh, and some of those are durable. We have one patient who's done amazingly well with a durable response um, years uh, into therapy on this, and, and this is just what's called the swimmer's plot, where the longer you're on the therapy, the longer your swimmer's lane is. Uh, and these are patients that are continuing to do uh, quite well. So that's one strategy. Another strategy that we've been highly involved with is, is thinking about using targeted therapy, not as a way of killing tumor cells per se, but actually as a way of modifying the immune microenvironment. Uh, it's been well known, and, and Jen Wargo, who was, was here for, for a few years at the turn of, of the decade, um, did some really seminal work looking at the effects of BRAF-targeted therapy on antigen expression, showing that if you gave a melanoma, BRAF mutant melanoma cell, a BRAF inhibitor, you had increased melanocytic antigen expression. Building upon that, um, we, we were involved in, in looking at tumors, uh, and, and really this model developed that you give 
uh, a patient BRAF-targeted therapy uh, and their pre and on treatment um, comparison, what we see is increased antigen expression. We see decreased immunosuppressive cytokine production. We see increased T cell infiltration, increased T cell clonality, and increased PDL1 expression. All of these things would, ex would predict, like if you just had, if you said, are any of these things important for responsiveness to PD1 inhibitors, you'd say, yeah, of course they are. Um, and so all of these things happen when you give BRAF mutant melanoma patients BRAF targeted therapy. Uh, Preclinically, the data looks quite good that if you combine these therapies together, you'll actually see improved outcomes. Um, and there's now been a number of strategies um, in melanoma looking at PD1 or PDL1 inhibitors plus BRAF and MEK inhibitors and MEK inhibitors. Um, and, and all of these show benefit. This is, this is vemurafenib uh, and, and atezolizumab, which is a PDL1 inhibitor. This is vemurafenib, cobimetinib, BRAF-MEK plus atezolizumab, showing really you know, impressive responses. All of these come with some toxicity uh, liability, but we can generally get patients through it. Um, this is a phase three trial that was just presented um, at at uh, ESMO, uh, this is a randomized study of 120 patients who either got triple therapy with pembrolizumab, dabrafenib, and trametinib, or received dabrafenib and trametinib plus placebo. Um, the, the, the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. Uh, despite the fact that a hazard ratio of 0.66 was achieved, this did not meet um, its, its endpoint. Uh, and though this p-value is 0.04, I will warn you that that is a one-sided p-value, and you got to get to 0.25 if you're going to do that, and they did not uh, achieve that. Um, but so it's hard to know for sure what to make of this data, but at least <laughs> the green line is above the, the, the brown line. It was, if it was completely superimposable or the opposite way, you'd say it was a terrible idea. Uh, and so I think the idea here is maybe there's something to it. Um, uh, but, but certainly this doesn't change uh, the standard of care at this moment. All right, a few conclusions and then we can get on to, to questions. So, so clearly antigen presentation defects are associated with resistance to immune checkpoint inhibition. And early data with HDAC inhibitors suggest a potential strategy for some patients with PD-1 inhibitor resistance. What we don't know yet and we've pushed uh, and, and are working with the company to try and generate this data are the patients that are having benefit patients who have had antigen presentation defects. There's a number of other potential mechanisms of resistance. It's not going to be every patient who, who has resistance to PD-1 inhibitors has lost antigen presentation, um, but it's, it would be really nice to know whether the patients who respond or at least have downward deflection of their response curves uh, did, did or did not have antigen presentation, and we're working hard to get that data. Uh, and then finally, there's a strong rationale to, to, um, to combine MAP kinase inhibitors with uh, PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Again, what we don't know is, is whether we can overcome um, antigen loss either at presentation, so we don't know if patients who have beta-2M LOH are more likely to do well if we take on a strategy where we give a little BRAF targeted therapy and then come in with PD-1 inhibitors. We're actually doing a trial 
um, where we're looking at a two-week lead-in of targeted therapy, followed by a little bit of time where we're giving drugs together with a PD-1 inhibitor, uh, and then stopping the targeted therapy and seeing what happens. Uh, and we're doing biopsies all along the way to really see, are we changing the microenvironment? Are we changing antigen expression? And is it those patients that we're doing that in that are, that are achieving benefit uh, beyond but with, with what we would think uh, that would happen if we just gave those drugs alone? Um, with that, I will conclude, and I'll have David come on up as well. Not that David, but that David, uh, and we'll answer some questions. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Ryan. One of the, the conclusions that comes from David's presentation is if you have a solitary metastasis, resect it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because it seems like, you know, it, it's interesting that the, the, these isolated uh, Mets can be unique and maybe untreatable, but you can get rid of them. True. As things change, um, more things stay the same. Uh, that's been a strategy to treat melanoma forever. Uh, if you can take out a tumor, take it out. Um, and that's still our policy uh, as a general rule. Now, the one thing that we will do if a patient has a solitary or, or a couple of oligometastatic lesions, they haven't been treated. We're actually now, in a, you know, maybe in their lung or maybe in the nodal basin, usually not the nodal basin of their primary because that's kind of curative to do surgery without anything else, is we're taking a not, you know, sort of a pseudo-neoadjuvant approach uh, in that we're treating because then you know whether that person responds. We now have the ability to give FDA-approved same therapy in the adjuvant setting after surgery versus the metastatic setting before surgery. And I, I kind of prefer to treat first to know whether this person's responding or not. Because if they respond, great. If they don't respond, take it out and I don't have to give them adjuvant therapy because it's probably just going to be um, exposing, tox exposing to toxicity without potential benefit. I guess the, the dilemma is how long do you wait to find a, see a response? Because from what David presented, sometimes these responses can <laughs> take a yeah. year. I mean, it's, it's a solid point. I think this patient in particular had something else happen, right? That patient received ipilimumab, then that patient received some radiation. Uh, there's, a, you know, oftentimes when we look at our patients, there's a little bit of messiness, um, and that's a good example. That the the non-messy stuff is the beautiful sequencing and computational data, but the treatment's always a little messy. Um, typically, what we do is we treat for 12 weeks. If patients aren't responding at 12 weeks from PD-1 inhibitor, they may have pseudoprogression, they may ultimately respond, but then take up the doggone tumor, take a look at it, and then you can decide whether you want to keep going. If you see a bunch of T cells that, that seem to be doing what you want them to do, maybe you, you give the, you know, the rest of the year of adjuvant therapy. Sorry, and just one other comment there is like, uh, at least from a research perspective, please take out the oligometastatic tumors. <laughs> and then um, both from a, like, if there are any community, community physicians here or folks who see patients in practice, I think one of the points from the presentation is that there is a lot we can learn from our patients. And so if there are any interesting cases, other things where you see where this is something like, huh, I kind of wonder what could be going on here. I think we would welcome those types of collaborations to see what questions. we can learn. One more question. <clears throat> of uh, helping the immune system, what do you think about the data coming out in the TLR9 agonists? And, and the mode of administration, you know, doing an intertumoral injection, does that, as a clinician, is that, is that less than ideal? 
So it's a great question. I think I would probably bin TLR agonists with oncolytic viruses um, and maybe sting agonists. They all work slightly differently, but maybe doing the same thing, which is attracting in uh, inflammatory cells into a tumor that may not have a bunch of inflammatory cells in it. Um, the challenge is, is delivery. You have to inject it into a tumor. Uh, you to date, there's, there's very few TLR agonists or toll-like receptor agonists that can be given IV. It's a bit like giving, you know, lipopolysaccharide. You're very good at causing um, hypotension and organ failure. Um, so you have to deliver it uh, injectably. There actually, I think TLR7 may be possible to give IV, but the rest aren't. Uh, and they all have their slightly different um, idiosyncrasies. I think um, ultimately injectable therapy, whether what, whatever you're injecting, is a strategy. The goal is can what you're injecting into that tumor migrate to the mm -hmm. rest of the body and lead to better outcomes. And to date, we don't have really strong data on that. We have amazing data in mice. Um, not so amazing data in humans yet. There is a randomized phase three trial of pembrolizumab plus um, TVEC, uh, which is the uh, oncolytic herpes virus that's approved. Um, Frontline study, we'll see if, if, the, if the data is a lot better for, that, for the combo arm, then that's probably suggestive that there was some abscopal, I'm using a radiation word for, for, vir you know, for viral injection, but I think the same thing. The other issue is most of us don't, most patients who have um, melanoma, most of us, or not melanoma, most, of, most patients who have cancer and most of us who take care of cancer patients, it's not easy to inject the tumors that are causing problems. And so, you know, if you have one or two tumors, it's, it's possible to, to pretty much stick a needle in anything if you have a long enough needle, strong enough arm, and a strong enough will. But, you know, you, you are increasing the risk to patients, and, and if you're not really controlling the whole disease, it may not be worth taking that risk. But it's, it's an unanswered question and a great question. Okay. And, and is there still hope for the sting pathway? I mean, I know that Merck had that uh, initial trial that failed. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, it comes down to which tumors need sting and which tumors already have sting. And, you know, sting seems to be really important at bringing in and trafficking T cells into the tumor. Um, but it's not the only thing that does that. And so it, it probably has to do with which, you know, identifying the, the, the patients who are most likely to benefit or even the tumors of a patient that is most likely to benefit from that type of strategy. So I don't, I don't think it's dead, but, um, but again, it comes down to you're injecting one tumor and you're hoping that, that a, a really complex thing happens that leads to a triggering of immune response elsewhere, not just in the tumor you're injecting. So basically, you would rather give something systemically or orally and, and not have to bother with uh, injecting a compound into a tumor or utilizing a radiologist to do a CT-guided... CT I, uh, I inject a lot inject. of tumors, okay. so I'm not against injecting okay. tumors. All right. um, but I'd like to have something that works for all of the tumors in the patient and do I do it? Sure. Have I treated patients who I probably should have put on hospice with a couple doses of herpes virus, hoping that that magic would happen? Absolutely. Um, but, but I think we need to have a better sense of how, how often are we going to see that more systemic effect of the interlesional therapy. Okay. Yep. Thanks.